seeing you then in, well, it's really only one Tuesday off, but January 4 is when we will be back together. So, and may I just say a minute to, I got my box that you so generously contributed, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. So, you know, I'm sure I don't need to go on and on, but just know how grateful I am for your generosity. I love doing this, and and uh, I think we're really learning a lot together. So, but anyway, would you pray with me, please? Father, we come to you tonight, and we rejoice. You are great, and yes, you are so awesome, just like what we studied. Father, it is so good to be able to put you in your place and to recognize just how great and awesome you really are. And every once in a while, we just need to stop and just visualize. Father, we know that we celebrate uh, this time of year, and Father, we celebrate Christmas not just because there was a manger, not just because there were shepherds and there was a proclamation from the angels in the sky, but Father, we celebrate Christmas because the reason, the very reason that the word became flesh and dwelt among us was so that that same baby could grow into a man who would suffer and whose perfect sinless blood was shed for our behalf. Father, may we never, never stop recognizing why we celebrate Christmas. Father, tonight we rejoice because of our salvation would, would totally been impossible. And so we go into this lesson tonight. We're ready to learn. We're ready to study. We're ready to hear from you. And Lord, we just pray for all those who might be hurting tonight, suffering for whatever reason. Lord, you know us so well, and you know exactly what's going on. And so, Lord, we just lay it at your feet, and how comforting it is to know that you are a God who listens, and you're at work. And may we just learn how to surrender and just trust you. That's what you want. You want trust, and you want obedience. And, Father, as we get to know you better, we find that those two things get to be easier and easier. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And again, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. All right, tonight we're, of course, in Esther chapter 1. And, uh, but before you turn to Esther 1, I would like you to turn to the book right before that, and that is Nehemiah 1. And remember last week I, I was pretty vocal, and I think I pretty much sold my case. I think I won it because I had enough scripture proof to just emphasize how in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, I mean, God was very, very clear about what his expectations were and the reason for the exile, but then to bring them back in 70 years. He did not want them intermingling or intermarrying in with the pagans, with the unbelievers. And he definitely made it very clear to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that he does not want us yoked with unbelievers. And it's 
it's just very, I think it's a very much a no-brainer because we're totally in different directions. We have totally different reasons for living. There's totally different purpose in our, in our priorities and everything. It's just totally different. In fact, that's what Paul said. We don't have a thing in common, really. And so um, I think that as we discussed last week, it was very clear, too, that less than 50,000 went back when King Cyrus, which was miraculous, that King Cyrus would even say to the people that they were free to go back home. I mean, a home was Jerusalem, the promised land, where Daniel prayed and faced that home. He knew that was home. That was where they belonged. And so um, as, as, we, as we understand how, how this was home and less than 50,000 went there, it's very clear that the reason why they, the majority of them did not go back was because they had, they had just gotten very comfortable in this kind of environment. It, they were, they were, they, they were, it was easy living. It was, it was not difficult. They just kind of had absorbed, which is such a huge temptation is to absorb in the culture. But then, and, and we saw that it's, it doesn't have to be that way because I think Daniel, I'm so glad we did Daniel first because it just absolutely shows that it is possible to live in paganistic culture and still shine like a star. And this is exactly what we saw in his life. So we know it's possible. We know that chronological order is not always in the Bible. It's not always, you know, according to chronological order. But, but in this case tonight, even though we know that Nehemiah and Esther come after um, Daniel, even though they're in front of Daniel in the scriptures, but um, tonight, as we go into Nehemiah, um, he was one of the figures I mentioned last week. He was one of three figures that helped bring the people and back to Jerusalem and helped rebuild the city and the wall. And these three men had unique talents, how God used them in such a way. And so... Nehemiah, though, I, I never, I, I just thought this week I would just kind of read the book of Nehemiah. I, I thought I would just check to see. And I was, I was really quite shocked because Nehemiah, um, he was one of those that stayed back. He stayed back. And in fact, in the first chapter that we'll read, he makes sure that we know that at the time, he had worked himself up to the king's cupbearer. So he had quite a position. But now, as we read this chapter, just, just look what happens. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, it's the words of Nehemiah. In the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. So his brother went back. And I think that his brother came back because he wanted to talk to Nehemiah. 
And so as they sat down to chat with other men that Nehemiah's brother brought along, Nehemiah said, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Obviously, it was far worse than maybe they expected. It was such a disaster. I mean, he said the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. I mean, I think uh, the majority of them, that's why they stayed, is because it, it was such an easier living. They had just kind of worked themselves into comfortable. And they, the thought of going back to Jerusalem to that devastation and all that hard work, I'm sure that this was, on a human perspective, a no-brainer. We're staying here. But for those that did go back, I think it was a real eye-opener of what they had to do, how they had to rebuild but now look, in verse 4, it was like the lights came on for Nehemiah. It's like all of a sudden he realized, I'm not supposed to be here. He saw, look at, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I think he felt the guilt. I think his conscience all of a sudden came into full bloom. I think all of a sudden he realized, because as you hear his prayer, I mean, this is a man who is sorry. He's repentant. He acknowledges. He starts out by, oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Now watch what he says. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now here, I don't think that he is entirely talking about their disobedience, and their non-repentant attitude back in the days of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was telling the people, you better repent, or Nebuchadnezzar's coming and you're going into exile. So Jeremiah was warning them. And so I don't think that Nehemiah is totally talking about that. I think because the way he talks, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands. I think all of a sudden the lights came on and he realized that this 70 years was for them to get a hold and seek God with all their heart. I think it's flashback of what Jeremiah, because see, Jeremiah was way before, even though it's after in the scriptures, gets a little confusing, I know, but Jeremiah was way before. He was warning, and I think now Nehemiah is like, yeah, I remember, I remember 
I remember how we were supposed to follow these commands. And even in exile, we were never to alter from Moses' law, from the sacrifices. We were not supposed to. But we just kind of started blending in. And hey, look at me. I worked myself right up to cupbearer. But then look in verse 8. It's like you can hear him say, I remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name which is the promised land. Again, very clear, very clear. It's like Nehemiah says, I remember. I remember those instructions. And remember last week I said, at first I I thought that the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah kind of settled in one little area. But that's not the case. There were so many that they got dispersed among the nations, which now you can see What Nehemiah says, that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, see, it didn't matter where they lived, how far away they lived. Very clear, the command God said, I will gather them from there, bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man being the king. You see, Nehemiah, all of a sudden, he realizes, I've got to get back. And I need help. And I can see God's hand now. He has gotten me to a place where I... Not just everybody can go into the king's presence, but because I am the cupbearer, I can go into the king's presence and I can ask for help. And so in chapter 2, starting with verse 7, he gets before the king. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. So he asked for two things. One, can you give me the right papers so that when, if I'm stopped along the way, I have got proof that by your permission, I have, I can go through, I can go through this land. So he's saying, I need help from you Mr. King, because I need to be protected. But here's the second reason. And may I have a letter to Aspa, keeper of the king's forest, 
so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. You see, and I, I need some materials. And you've got a whole forest here. So how about it? And then look, look what he says after he asks the king these questions. And then he tells us in his book, it's like he said, and let me tell you what his answer was. And because, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Don't you love that attitude? He gave all credit to God. Because God was intervening, because God had me in the right place, because God then touched his heart and made it soft to my request. Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So if you have a little time, sometime you should just read the book of Nehemiah. It's not that long. But if you think that it was easy, if you think it was an easy job to rebuild that place, to build that wall, but yet how Nehemiah, how he had gotten himself so, you know, into the everyday of, of the citadel of Susa, the Persian Empire, and then all of a sudden when his brother comes and explains, and all of a sudden he says, I got to get back. But there were very many obstacles. But now Nehemiah was given a gift, and these three men all had separate gifts to make this work. Now, we can see that Nehemiah, probably with his ability with carpenter work or the ability to put right people, doing the right job, maybe he was good at organization, whatever. But the second person was Zerubbabel. And he was the one that had the gift of governing. You know, there's politics and everything. And so I'm sure that he needed his gifts to be able to keep things in order, to keep things on the up and up, to keep, you know, just keep the governing body going. And then the third person was Ezra. Now, Ezra was a descendant of Aaron. He was part of the Levite tribe. And so yeah, Ezra was, he was a prophet, yes. He was a priest, yes. But he was also a scribe. And, and Ezra was responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people of Judah. And he was the one, if you remember a couple weeks ago, well, maybe it was last week even, that we, that we read the Ezra 9 and Ezra 10, because even those of the 42 plus thousand that went back, they still, some of them had intermarried. And Ezra, being the godly priest, he brought those who had intermarried together. And I mean, it was no nonsense. He divided them and sent the ones back. Because God was that firm from Abraham to the Mosaic law, they were not to intermarry. And it goes along with you cannot be joined. You cannot be yoked with an unbeliever. It all coincides. 
God wants us to stick with believers because it's just the temptation of human nature. It's just so easy to get pulled into the wrong direction. So what Ezra had to do was he had to, it was kind of like these people, these people that came back, they needed a renewal. They need to kind of be reintroduced to Moses' laws, what God expected. It was kind of like a revival. He brought the people back into God's word. And, you know, I was thinking about that. And, you know, we just love that word revival. It's like when sinners come back. It's kind of like when sinners, when the lights come back on and you realize how far off you've, you've gone. And your spirit is revived. And how do we stay there without drifting again? We stay in God's word and we stay committed to his word. But not only learning, but living. Living it out. That's how we stay renewed, revived, regenerated, kept on track. This book is the answer, and then learning, and then living it out. So that's just kind of like an intro. Now we turn to Esther chapter 1. Now this chapter, this is how the book of Esther, I mean, it's the first chapter of the book of Esther, and I mean, it is a humdinger. If you want to see what worldly behavior is like, what a soul without redemption is like, what self on the throne of your life looks like. This chapter is it. But I have to, I'm going to admit something to you. When I first started reading, I've read this chapter many times, and, you know, we are human beings, unfortunately, and without even realizing it, I'm, I'm, looking at the description of this palace. I mean, he, he fine-tuned it so that my first thought was, wow, I sure would have loved to have seen that place. And as soon as I said it, I just like the Holy Spirit grabbed me around the throat. But it just showed me how we can just get so sucked up into the standards of the world. And, and, and how the world measures success. And what arrogant, egotistical, self-centered people really look like. And what their life is all about. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. I think we've learned from Daniel that when empires ruled the world, empires consisted of many nations. But whoever ruled the world had the most territory, of course, had the most nations. So this Persian empire consisted of 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, 
King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So even though his territory was huge, he, it's like the capital. It's where his residence was. It's where he sat on his throne. It says that in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his, this is quite a bunch, all his nobles, all his officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles of the provinces were present. See, each of the 127 provinces, each had a ruler over them. So he decided to bring all of those leaders, as well as the military leaders, as well as his nobles, as well as his officials. And he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have one big banquet. I mean, have you ever been at a banquet for 180 days? I mean, I can't even imagine 180 hours, let alone 180 days. So that's a long time. For a full 180 days. Look what he did. I mean, you, you talk about someone who is quite opinionated and thinks a lot of himself. For 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth. Now watch. The vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, and they probably staggered home, when these days were over, the king then gave another banquet, lasting seven days. Even that's a long time. Seven days. And this, this banquet was in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. And it was for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. And if you did your questions, you noticed that I, I asked that question. What, who do you think he means when he says from the least to the greatest? And the reason why I asked that question because it just rubbed me the wrong way. Because the, he is talking totally about the world standards. Who is the least according to world standards? Well, of course, it's not hard. The, the people who are the lowliest, the poorest of the poor, maybe the homeless, maybe the missions. I mean, how we classify the lowest, the least. And, and all the way through middle class, so from the least all the way through middle class, all the way to the greatest. And who in the world did he mean by the greatest? Well, the people who he thought achieved worldly status by whatever they attained, wherever they were in, in social standards, high society, they were recognized, people were awed by them because of what they had or what they did or what they accomplished. And like I said, it just rubbed me the wrong way because I couldn't help but think, 
And you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to, but it's in Galatians 3. And I, I hope that you would put Galatians 3 next to that because once, because in chapter 1 of Esther, it just shows that when you talk about from the least to the greatest, you are talking world standards, not godly standards. Because according to Paul in Galatians 3, verse 26, you, you are all sons of God. And that happened through your faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you. And I don't really care. I don't think Paul either. I don't care if he, if he means the lowliest of the low, according to worldly standards, or the highest of the high, according to worldly standards. Paul is trying to say, once you come to the cross, and we've all heard how the level the ground is at Calvary. But that's why it should rub us the wrong way, because when we are in Christ, we have the best, clothes possible. When you are in Christ, you are wearing, you are clothed with the robe of righteousness. You now are enabled to live right. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ. Just shows how pagan, how godless, how spiritually ignorant the first chapter is. When you when you totally compare from the least to the greatest when it comes to worldly standards versus godly standards and all those who come to Christ. We stand together as one. So now as we go into the description, starting with verse 6, the garnet hangings of white and blue linen, Fastened with cords of blue linen. Fastened with cords of white linen and purple material. Just silver rings on marble pillars. So we've got white and blue linen. We, they're fastened with cords of white linen and purple material. Silver rings on marble pillars. That was, that was stunning, I'm sure. It was beautiful. What, what wealth and riches and money can buy. Unfortunately, as this man is parading his things around, isn't it sad that he's as lost as lost can be? It's kind of like what we're told. You gain the whole world, and yet you lose your soul. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, 
mother of pearl and other costly stones. So I think we have enough picture in our mind of the beauty of this place that he wanted to show off. So he wanted to show his palace off, the gardens off. And then in verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. So you're talking handmade. You know, no factory business. Each one handmade, distinctly different. Can you imagine the cost of that? Because it sounds like they all had a goblet. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. I kind of looked at that verse and thought, oh, he's such a big shot. He just wants now, you know, he's parading his place around. He's parading his, his uh, furnishings as well as his, his cups and goblets and gold. And, and then, oh, he says, let me show you the bar. And I just want you to know that you are welcome to anything and everything. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. They were able to drink in their own way. I mean, you've got people who've never seen something like this before. They're going to go at that because they might not ever get this chance again. You've got people who are walking around with a drink in their hand because that just looks so prominent. And after all, we don't even have to pay for this. The alcohol was flowing. So when I read for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man whatever he wished. Now, there's a little white space between verse 8 and 9. You can about imagine after 180 days or even seven days, and this is, and he is being liberal, and he is just letting them have whatever they want. You better know that Things are going to go sour fast. Things are out of control. Another thing that just jolted me, thinking that, you know, when self is not controlled, we're going to have trouble. And that's why when you study the fruit of God's spirit and how it's just put in such proper order, that you need the spirit producing that unconditional love in you, which then will produce a joy in you, and then a peace, and then a patience, and then a kindness, and then a goodness, and then a faithfulness, and then a gentleness. And after those eight, when you have those eight Christ-like qualities coming out of you that the spirit is producing, 
then and only then are you able to be self-controlled. And this is totally gone in this chapter. It never was. Because they're pagan. They're unbelievers. There's no help from the Holy Spirit. And so everything's out of control. Everything is out of control. And the next verse proves it. Now remember, I've, I said he's already shown off his house, his palace, his gardens. He's shown off his goblets. He's opened up the bar. Everybody's intoxicated. Self is totally out of control. And he gets this idea in that drunken mind of his. And let me tell you, this is probably the most disrespectful thing, but then <laughs> that's going to happen when you're out of control, when you're not thinking straight. All he thinks about is that wife of his, that queen of his. She is gorgeous. And this is going to be another notch in my belt that I can show off. And so I'm going to have my eunuch go to her and command her. Because it says, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. I would dare say she was just drop-dead gorgeous. And he wanted to show her off. I read a couple things about this. It was, it was really fascinating. And there wasn't one person in the stories that I read that made this a request like, oh, I'm so proud of my wife. I'm so proud of my king. I just want to introduce her to you. She's so wonderful in every way. I just want, I just want you to meet her and see that she's not only lovely in her outside, but she's such a lovely person. What a joke. That is not at all what this drunken king was insinuating. He's asking Vashti, not asking, he's commanding her to come because it's just going to make him look all the better. And when you've got everybody intoxicated in there, I don't think he would even care if they all took a grab at her, who knows? Because there was nothing moral about this scene. And I don't really, truthfully, think that this was a first. I think Vashti knew the king. I think he's pulled this before. I think from the rest of the chapter, most women of that day were treated with such disrespect 
they were worth nothing. They were just like, you know your place. And when I call you, when I need something, when I snap my fingers, or, or when I just want to show you off, you will do as I say. And I'm thinking, you can tell in this chapter, they're so ungodly. Because there is nothing about a marriage that God talked about in Genesis 2. There is nothing about a godly marriage. This was absolutely the opposite of Genesis 2. Okay, now. So the eunuchs come and they come with a command, uh, get on, get on with the Vashti, get your best crown on, come on. And Vashti, I think, I think she is well aware of what the consequences are going to be. But I think she's been used and abused so many times. And this is just like the last straw. I think she says, enough. No, I'm not. She refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So now you put furious and burned with anger on top of being drunk. And the reason why, because, I mean, in front of all of his peers, in front of all of his people, I don't think there's been a time that Someone said no to him. This is probably a first. And he's embarrassed. He's humiliated. And he doesn't like this feeling at all. And so, oh, it comes. I would dare say that the veins in his forehead were protruding and throbbing. I think he was that mad. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and who were closest to the king. Now, I, I just want to go over Ephesians chapter 6 a minute. No, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Because when Paul talked about marriage, I mean, he went and said that wives are they are to submit to their husbands. But you know the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 5.22. Wives must submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So this verse does not pertain here because there's nothing about the Lord in this. And in all reality, in Genesis 3 after the fall, one of the consequences to Eve for the sin was that because of sin, there would now be chaos. So God had to set up an order. And he said to Eve, now the man will rule over you. But this does not mean 
It does not mean that a wife must obey her husband if he commands her to sin. It's kind of like what Peter and John had in the book of Acts when they didn't obey authority. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. The only time that we can disobey authority is when the authority causes us to sin. Every command that we are to submit to on a human level conditions itself by a higher obligation, and that's God. That's the only time. Otherwise, when you have a marriage the way God intended, when the wives submit to the husbands as unto the Lord, it's not even an issue. It's not even hard. Because this is the way God set it up, and I do what God says. But like, like in our marriage, I've got to say, Tom and I talked about this, and Tom says, I am the president of this corporation and you are my vice president. And as president, I know that you can do certain things better than me. So as president, I'm telling you to do it. Now, does that mean I'm better than Tom? No, because as president of our marriage corporation, he knows we're a team. And in teamwork, some, just like when God created man and when he created woman, he knew that we would have different qualities and that we would be able, one would be able to do what the other can't. And that together, we would make the corporation, the marriage work. And we would make sure that we, the bottoms of the triangle, do and submit because of the top of the triangle. And so I just want to make sure we get that straight in this part of Scripture. Because there was nothing godly in this chapter. So now he calls all his wise men. Now we've been talking about wise men. In the book of Daniel, there were two kinds of wise men. There were worldly wise men, and there were God's wise men. Earthly wise men, worldly wise men, were wise with facts and education, and they had the ability of sorcery. They had a lot of tricks in their bags. Worldly wisdom. But God's wisdom, remember the kind that Daniel talked about? You give wisdom to those who are wise. Godly wisdom is when you know you're not. You don't have answers. So you go to the one who has them all. So these particular wise men are the worldly kind. The one who's going to base all of their information on worldly standards. And so he calls them all, the seven nobles in verse 14, 
who had a special access to the king, who were the highest in the kingdom. And then he said, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan, he was probably one of the head. He was the spokesman, and he replied in the presence of the king and all the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all of the nobles and all of the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. So we've got trouble because not only did she disobey the king, now for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded the queen to be brought before him and she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who have heard the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. These men were so nervous because they were so afraid they weren't going to be able to control their women. And they were very nervous about that. If Vashti gets away with it, then all of our women are going to think that they can treat us and say no to our commands. You know, there was a little part of me that thought, yay. But yet, and then I went back to Ephesians 5.22, but I thought, yeah, but they don't know the Lord. This is just such a lopsided marriage. They're all, the women were just being used. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. They're saying, we've got a mess. I thought to myself, but it's okay for you to disrespect them, but it's not okay for for them to disrespect you. See, it doesn't work both ways. They wanted the control. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media. Same old thing. Give me that paper. Let me sign it. Let me stamp it. So that it cannot be broken. It cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands 
to the greatest. There you go again. You can just see the vengeance that will show them. We want to keep them under. We, it's so condescending. We want to keep them in their place. The king and the nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue. I guess, I guess what we're understanding here is that there was no question about what it said. That no matter what language the persons or the province or the area spoke, they made sure that everybody understood. And this is what they wanted understood. That every man should be ruler over his household. See, and that's a far cry. That attitude is a far cry from what Paul says, and wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord. It's a whole different frame of mind. And that's chapter one in the book of Esther. I think God wanted us to see this is what pagan looks like. This is what, this is what the heart of man looks like. This is what unbelieving looks like. This is when self is totally in control, looks like. And this is the way we end. And I, I thought to myself as I ended this chapter, and now I'm supposed to say, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and you know what? I thought, yep, but it's true. I'm still going to say Merry Christmas because, because of the fact we can end this night and this chapter because our spiritual eyes have been open. We have seen the light. We do understand what the Spirit is producing in us. What love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control looks like. That we've got a choice in the matter. Oh yeah, we can pull away from all that and we can see the ugliness of self start coming into our lives. But we have a choice to get out of it. We have a choice to go back to the cross. Because that's what Merry Christmas is. We can go back to the cross of Christ. And we can feel that unconditional love of forgiveness and repentance and then restitution and start over. We have the chance to have all that because of Merry Christmas. Aren't you glad tonight that you have a choice? You don't have to live like the first chapter of Esther. 
but how quick it is to all of a sudden see how the world standards, how we can get caught up in it and how our brain can work. And it, it's so subtle. But I'll tell you, to be able to say no and to know that we can live our life full, abundant, with all those Christmas words, especially the word hope in the light of Jesus. That's how we can, that's how we can live. So Merry Christmas does fit. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. It's very clear. And we do praise you. And we give you all the glory tonight. But as we stand and end with this song tonight, may we see how badly we need you and how badly we need to stay clinging to you. Because how quick if we disconnect, how quick we can get sucked up into the world's ways of thinking the world's standards, the world's wisdom. But because of Jesus, we have a choice to say no to that and instead live abundant with the fruit of your spirit, with the hope of a future, with a Bible open knowing that every word is true with your commands, knowing that you command us because you know us so well. And you do not want us to suffer consequences. So we just praise you tonight for Christmas and for the cross and for a Savior and for life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.